Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mind the Gap, making education work across the globe with me, Tom Sherrington and Emma Turner. Hello, Emma. Hello, Tom. You're looking extraordinarily rested. Anyone would think we just had some holidays. <laughs> I know, so we're, we're back. We're back with a bang. We're back to the new season of Mind the Gap. I've had a good holiday and we're, I'm so thrilled because this, this feels like it's a long time coming. We're starting off the year with, welcome to Alam Shaha. Welcome, Alam. Hi, Tom. Hi. Thanks for having me on. No, it's it's great. I, I feel like we're, we're kindred spirits, we're physics teachers. <laughs> so if Emma, Emma was also going just to, you know, let us talk physics. For, that wouldn't make the greatest sense. Hey, Thomas, let me stop you there. I am a science graduate. I'll have you know. Thank you so much. <laughs> Not physics, I'll grant you. But <laughs> It's true. But So I, I'll ask you to say this in a minute, but my, my sort of awareness of you, Alam, goes back a long time. So and, uh, sort of, I felt like Twitter started for me about sort of 10, 10 or 11 years ago, and you were always there, it seems to me. Yeah, unfortunately, and, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But it's one of those things, and so I've kind of been following you, aware of you, and what you've been up to for for a long time. And um, did we meet in person very briefly at the first research ed? Yeah, I think we did. Yeah. I, I think we did. Yeah, I think we were in the green room or whatever very briefly together. And that was that was that was very cool. And you, one of the first things that I was aware of you was you wrote this fantastic book called the 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 Young Atheists Handbook. Yes, that's right. Uh, yeah, that yeah, a long and, time ago. And it was it was a it's a very personal account about your own sort of trajectory and so on. So I mean, we'll talk about your new books in a minute. But is that is that still something that you get asked to talk about or refer to? Yeah, I mean, it was an unusual book. It is an unusual book in that I set out to to write a book uh, about atheism and non-belief uh, for young people, uh, which was just you know from from my perspective as a teacher, as a physics teacher, as I'm sure you know that you know those big questions used to come up in class. And, uh, you know, that there's not that much time and space in, in physics lessons to, to really delve into them. And that was what prompted my, my desire to write a book about non-belief for young people. And um, I wrote up a proposal and took it to an agent who, who said, this is a very worthwhile idea. It's, it's, you know, it's really good, but uh, nobody's going to buy it. And I, <laughs> uh, I thought that was the end of my kind of writing career. And then uh, I think she was playing with me a bit. She She then said, you know, but I like how you write. Why Why don't you just write about your journey and about why you are an atheist? And and so I ended up writing this very peculiar blend of memoir and kind of exposition of ideas, um, which, I, you know, I, I think it works as a book. And uh, the, the, the most gratifying thing about it is just the, the kind of sheer number of readers have written to me to say thank you for writing the book. It made me feel not alone. And um it's very cheesy, but um, if you've seen the film Shadowlands, which is about C.S. Lewis, there's a line in the movie which C.S. Lewis says, but uh, I think was actually just written by the scriptwriter. And, and C.S. Lewis in the film says, we read to know that we are not alone. And, um, you know, I think that's that's the one thing I, I managed to accomplish with that book, which uh, was to to tell a story that resonated with people who, who felt that they hadn't had that story told before. <laughs> Partially or largely because uh, I'm from a Muslim background, and um, uh, it's it's not so easy for for most um, people from Muslim backgrounds to become openly atheist. I, I think um, so. Yeah, I mean, I'm very proud of the book, and it's still kind of got a life of its own out there. 
And, um, you know, I still uh, I was on the board of Humanist UK for a while and I, I still am openly atheist and I would describe myself as a humanist. And it's an important part of my identity. But, you know, I think, oh, God, these days we're, everyone has all these identities. And, you know, what I would say is that in terms of identity, we have different identities that we kind of bring to the fore at different times. And really, uh, Twitter is an unusual place because I, th- I think we can become very mixed up or I certainly am not one person on Twitter. I'm quite schizophrenic on it. Um, but yeah, you know, th- thank you for asking about that book because it really started me off on my writing career and uh, it's a very important book to me. Well, it's, it was an important book to me. I mean, I felt like I was at the time, you know, running, running a school and talking about religion and we used, to, we used to do the Lord's Prayer and assembly and I was an atheist and I just had to say, look, to, I used to do assemblies to my students saying, I know we do the Lord's Prayer because this is a tradition, but this is what I believe. And I used to do right. similar things. I've got real strength from you, even though I didn't have to sort of pull away from a faith background. And I still remember the story of how you had your first bacon sandwich. <laughs> as a kind of, like a sort of totem of the kind of breaking out. It was kind of, it was just, that's a sort of a sort of little symbol of it, of the change and how, how sort of big a deal that was in the family. So that was, it was a beautiful book. So, so just, for people who are not sure, I mean, that's how I came across you. Tell tell people who who might not know, you know, much about your background, what you're what you're doing now. What's your kind of world of work at the moment? I mean, I would say to your listeners, who I imagine are mostly teachers, you know, I, I am professionally, I'm a teacher first and foremost. You know, I uh, I, I started teaching twenty five years ago. I'm kind of uh, shocked to say, and um, I, I've had about. Um, 15 or 16 of those 25 years in the classroom um I took a short well quite a long break in my uh mid 20s to mid 30s where I worked in television for about eight or nine years and um I I, I went I left teaching and went into this very glamorous industry that everyone thinks television is cool uh and it was an amazing experience you know I got to travel I got to meet lots of interesting people I got to do lots of interesting things and and learn how to become a filmmaker you know working at the BBC and so forth um but towards the end of my time in TV you know I I, I had a growing sense of dissatisfaction and I, I became very disillusioned with the world of television and, and the kind of way the industry worked and my last job was working on Teachers TV, which was a, I don't know if any of your listeners will remember, it was a kind of satellite television channel for teachers, which sadly I think was ahead of its time. It had all this money and funding to make programmes and unfortunately it was before the age of YouTube and so forth and um, I think an awful lot of money was wasted and it wasn't run by the right people as far as I was concerned. I think if it, if it was around today, uh, that there'd be a lot more teachers who are a lot more media savvy and so forth who, who would be able to contribute. But um, I was working at Teachers TV and um, I did I did this um, big filming project, which was filming live at a school. And, and it really reminded me how great teaching could be. And I, I, I just really missed the sense of community and purpose and meaning that teaching had given me and um you know i just thought i'm going to go back into teaching uh I, I, and you know so, uh, i think a lot of my friends thought I thought i was crazy you know I was, you know leaving this very glamorous industry very well paid industry you know by the time i left teaching I, I was a producer director earning you know more money than i've ever earned in teaching but you know i was going through some probably some kind of midlife crisis as we do and um 
you know, I, I was looking for meaning and purpose in my life. And whatever you say about teaching, you know, nobody can ever turn around and say that teaching isn't useful, you know, and going back to what we were talking about earlier about being atheists, you know, if you're an atheist and you don't believe in an afterlife or a God, then you know that you have to make your own meaning and purpose in this life. And teaching is a fantastic profession for doing that. You know, we contribute to society in a unique way. We are working alongside our fellow human beings, you know, and um, as I said, in the best schools, in the best environments, you feel part of a community and, and being part of a community is, is, I think, important to our sense of well-being or certainly to my sense of well-being. So, yeah, I left uh, television and, and went back into teaching. But television had changed me in that I, I really kind of had got an itch for being creative, for making things. And very, very luckily, uh, uh, what I've been able to do since going back into teaching is work part time as a teacher and then work on various kind of creative projects ranging from you know, videos about science practicals for, for teachers to, you know, my latest project uh, is, a, is a children's picture book. Um, and what I would say is um, all my creative work has been informed and inspired by my teaching. So uh, um, it, one of the things that I, I struggle with in TV, you know, I, th I think, uh, you know, people would always say, oh, that's too didactic, that's too educational, as if people don't want to be taught. And, you know, if you look at my body of work, it's it's all teaching related. You know, it's all, I, you know, I think learning is wonderful. People people do want to be taught. And um, so even well, this new... I mean, it is for people. I mean, I, if you just look at your name on Amazon, and then you've just got a lot of books. Can I just check then? Is the book you're referring to um, uh, How to Find the Rainbow? That's right. Yeah, that's my first. Uh, it's a first work of fiction, first children's picture book. And uh, I'm very excited about it. Uh, obviously, it was um, it's come about because I became a dad six years ago. And uh, I, I think both of you are parents and you know that you end up reading millions and millions and millions of picture books. So I think most parents become kind of expert in picture books. And um, weirdly, uh, I'd done a master's in creative writing a few years ago, uh, which is probably a little bit unusual for a science teacher. But um, And, uh, you know, I've got an unfinished novel in my desk, but I'm very pleased to say that, um, you know, I've managed to put what I learned about writing fiction into this uh, children's picture book. I think, you know, I, I'm... I, I, I really am excited about it. It's, it's. Um, I think it's a piece of work that is uh, kind of every piece of work is is kind of a development from what I've done in the past. And so, with children's picture books, I'm sure you're aware that a lot of children's picture books have like a moral at the end, like be kind or share stuff or whatever. Um, and and I thought I wanted to write a picture book where instead of a moral at the end, like the characters make some kind of scientific discovery. Um, and so in this particular book, uh, which I hope will be the first of a series, um, the scientific discovery is how rainbows are formed. Uh, and the two characters are, are based on my daughters, really, really obviously. And I'm sure they'll work it out when they're older, like, oh, that's me and that's me. But, um, so I kind of feel like I cheated a bit as well because, um, you know, the character development was quite easy because I, 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 I modeled the, the characters on my daughters. Amazing. Wow. I mean, you're going to get that one. <laughs> I'm just listening to this and I'm and I'm just thinking that um it's so interesting and so wonderful to hear a teacher who's been a teacher, gone and done something else, and then come back. And I think the message about not only 
teaching potentially giving you purpose and kind of direction and a, a kind of a grounding in in how you feel about your life but also that teaching is kind of a potential springboard to other things at the same time as well this kind of hybrid career model that you've got now I think is hugely important for teachers in the profession to hear to say you know you can but you can teach and those skills from teaching and that knowledge of teaching is transferable into other creative avenues as well. So as you were teaching, I was just kind of talking, sorry, I was just going down my list of, oh, that's interesting, flexible working, hybrid career, <laughs> other avenues, recruitment and retention. It's like you've kind of, you've mastered this way of working that allows you to keep teaching, but also do all of these other wonderful things, which I just think is a, is a great model for teachers to hear that it's not all or nothing, that actually teaching can be the springboard for other things. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I would say that, you know, I started off as a teacher and um, what one thing that really kind of almost offends me is that uh, people are far more impressed by all the other things that I do. And actually the most difficult, the most challenging, the most creative thing that I do is teach. And, and uh, you know, I wish we lived in a society where where people would think, oh, wow, he's a teacher, you know, and or wow, anyone's a teacher. Because I think unless you've done the job, you, you really don't understand how difficult it is. And, and, you know, I look at all my colleagues and I'm just in awe of people who can do this job. It's so, you know, we we go in and we stand up in front of 30 children. Uh, you know, often uh, an audience that is there by force, you know, and, and we, we have to, you know, manage those 30, 30 young people and deliver a lesson and keep them enthused and excited. And, and, and then we're assessed, you know, we are judged. It's not like, so I do, I've done a lot of what is called science communication. And um, uh, this is an unpopular thing that I, I have said to, to science communicators is that, you know, so I do these live shows to excite people about science, but the, the people who watch that show don't have to go and have a test. Um, I'm not in any sense responsible for, for those people learning something. Nobody's going to check. Whereas as teachers, we have this tremendous responsibility, tremendous pressure. And then we have to do it again every hour. You know, and at my school, for example, we have hour long lessons. And, you know, there are days where, where I have to do it f five hours of this stuff. And um, I think ordinary people really don't appreciate how difficult that is. And obviously, everyone's got an opinion on teaching because they went to school. But that that perspective of teachers from being a student is is so skewed, you know. It really yeah. doesn't get. Do you know what I mean? And uh, I, 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 I really feel what, what, what I love about what you what you do. We can come talk about your 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 other some of your other things. Is that you have done so many things. We could, we could get carried away about your, you know your, the recipes for home home science and all sorts of other things. But very directly related to teaching. Another th sort of reason why it's like a bridge for me into kind of your your most recent book is what you did. But going back a few years, um, working with Jonathan Sanderson, he did this fantastic thing about science demos and brilliant website called sciencedemo.org. And you, you did a, a video, which I thought was like almost like a kind of, for me, a bit of a seminal bit of CPD for science teachers, which I used to share quite often, which was, explaining why demonstrations are so useful and how to make the most of them. And you you did some classic science demos as part of that. And just watching that, you just think you couldn't made a, you couldn't have made those videos if you hadn't done those things like 50 times and worked out like how to 
not just do them, but get the kids to understand what you're doing. And then there's a real kind of like knowledge that you brought to that. And there's this brilliant bit of, for me, a bit of blog, bloggery, which I did, which let, I watched your videos. And then I... Bloggery. Yeah. Got my, <laughs> I got my students to do the demo, having watched you do it. And we wrote it up on our blog. like, And you then put it on yours saying, oh, my God, students are actually doing the demo the way we showed and it's like i love that but it was like your teacher sense though is 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 brilliant because you, you you bring it to everything you do don't you yeah i think you know this is going back to what i was saying i think i think it's sad that people don't rate teachers and and actually you know we're required to think creatively and if we're lucky enough to have the time and space to do so you know we we think deeply about pedagogy about what we're doing and why and i i think one of the advantages ML being part time is that I do have a bit more time and space than than full time teachers to 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 explore these other things, and you know that is one of the problems with teaching that we have so much to do that I'm not sure that all teachers are given the opportunity to flourish to become the best teachers that they can be. So I mean. Sorry, I was just going to say that there was a guy that was watching on Instagram the other day that did this brilliant short reel about teaching. He's a science teacher, secondary teacher. And he said, I wonder if there's a job where every hour you could have a group of 30 teenagers come into a room who don't want to be there to try and teach them things that they don't want to know and aren't interested. And then after an hour, if you could swap those for another 30 teenagers who don't want to be in there. And then maybe after I've done all of that, I could go home and write about whether or not they were good or not and I said I wonder if there's a job like that and as you were just describing teaching I was just thinking that this guy's real on Instagram about trying to describe the pressures that you have as a teacher especially when you're teaching children who might not be particularly interested in the content which I'm going to pick up on when we start talking about your new book about your introduction about your little girl and what she thinks about the <laughs> You're listening to Mind the Gap, presented by John Cat Educational. Over the past six decades, John Cat has supported teachers and school leaders with research-based, easy-to-use professional development books for the entire faculty. Visit us.johncatbookshop.com in the United States or at johncatbookshop.com or elsewhere across the globe to find the latest titles. But why don't you go with that now? Because let's talk about it. I mean, Alan has just made produce this brilliant book. I was going to show on the screen now, but when we're on the YouTube, why don't things fall up? And it's um, mm-hmm. it's just it's, it's subtitled and six other science lessons you missed at school, which is great. And it's a really interesting type of book because it's a it's a science book, but it's like a it's like a literary science book. You it's, you read it. It's not like uh, diagrams and textbook. It's not a textbook. It's a book you sit and read. And it's like a story unfolds about science, which I want to get into. I've got so many folded down corners. But yeah, Emma, what are you, what was your take on well, the intro? My, my question was, sort of, you talk in your introduction to that book about your little girl and her sort of, the, how she's constantly asking, why, 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 why does this happen? Why does this work? How does this, when, how does this work? And I was kind of thinking about the guy from Instagram with his surreal about why we think that, what well, why do you think that children go from this insatiable curiosity of finding out about the world to being that kind of quite dry humour of that chap on Instagram saying, 
you know, why by the time that they're 14, 15, 16, are they not asking why and are they not interested? And I kind of wanted to get your viewpoint on on why you thought we go from being potential, very curious minds to not particularly fascinated with the content. Well, I don't really know where to start with that question. I think it's such a big question. And and my answer is that uh, it's complicated. So I think, you know, unfortunately, you know, children grow up in very different circumstances and um, have different experiences growing up. And I think from the the household they grow up into to the schools they go to and so forth. And I, I think there are lots of opportunities for children to have their kind of childlike wonder ground away um, if they're if they're not if that if that's not nurtured uh, by their parents by 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 their teachers and so forth. Um, and on top of that, um, you know, the teenage years, uh, we know that the teenage brain is going through all sorts of weird and wonderful things. So uh, I think. Uh, you know, some children do manage to to hold on to that kind of inquisitiveness, that natural desire to learn. However, I think there are so many factors which affect uh, a child's well-being, if you like, that um, you know they they haven't got that that capacity to 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 and thirst for knowledge that that they have when they're very very young. And you know, it's very sad to see that knocked out of kids when they're you know primary aged or whatever. And um, <laughs> one of the things I feel Kind of almost weirdly guilty about. So I came from a very uh, underprivileged background, uh, immigrant child, grew up um, parents uh, without much parental input, um, and uh, now my children have this very middle class existence. You know, I'm a teacher, my wife's a doctor. Uh, we, we have the the time, the money, the energy to to take our children to museums to indulge them when they're asking why to read to them and so forth so my my, my children already have a head start in life and I, it you know it makes me very sad that not all children have have that start and my my, my hope for my children is that they they go through a, a schooling where they encounter teachers and and peers who who allow them to to continue to be interested in the world and so forth and unfortunately that's not a guarantee even for my children, you know, and um, so, you know, I never, I never blame children for not being interested. I never blame children for not wanting to be in my lessons. Um, I know that and I, I'm very aware that, you know, I, I teach in a school that that sets or streams or whatever. And, I, you know, I've got the the, the top set and I, I, I teach the a bottom set, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, and I have different approaches for teaching those those kind of classes. But um, I try not to ever put the responsibility for not being interested or being bored or whatever onto onto a child and I, I do my best to help them but uh you know uh I, I think I feel like one of the things and one of the reasons why I have continued to teach and why I think it's I'm lucky to have become a teacher and and it's a job that works for me is that um I, I have always remembered what it's like to be a teenager and I th- I'm not sure all teachers do I'm not sure all adults do but for me my, my teenage years were really significant just as they are for most people that you know my formative years but you know I had a particularly tumultuous time um, growing up and um, I think that's given me a, a deep deep sense of empathy for for young people and uh, I don't know if I'm answering your question Emma. I think I, I might be rambling a bit but uh, you know well, I think so, so. I think there's a number of things. I mean, I, I've I sometimes think this difference is slightly overplayed personally because I think, like you know, 
playing in the sand and being curious about you know why things do things is slightly different from you know how do I understand Macbeth or something and yeah. kids do the can process information and answer simple questions on their own because they can see things and they don't have to keep asking why because they can just work it out. But I think that kind of thing of going with what kids are interested in or kind of making them see what's possible or what the questions are is a big factor. And you describe it in one of the chapters in your book, which is a chapter which is, I thought this was just amazing, this, Our Fish Animals, Chapter 6. And so, and you talk about how t- towards the end, actually, you say, you talk about how you didn't really appreciate quite how grand the kind of work of Darwin was, for example, at the time you went to school. Um, and you sort of say, you know, you, you know, truth be told, you don't think that your teachers of biology necessarily allowed you to kind of see what was happening. And so the curriculum and the experience was part of that. But it was, so it's the teachers kind of knowing the questions to ask or to show you what the questions are and why it's interesting. So we have that, we have a real responsibility there, don't we, to kind of frame the questions to make. So how, I mean, do you, going back now, what do you think your teachers might have done differently that you, that they didn't do? I mean, um, I don't think we disagree. I, I think teachers do have a responsibility. But again, you know, I would come back to, to the fact that, you know, I, I remember my biology teacher um, uh, and looking back now, you know, one of my biology teachers was very, very young and had difficulties with classroom management and so forth and you know as a teacher myself I know how difficult the job is and so I feel I can't be too harsh on people who who don't do the job in the best way possible I don't think all of us can and I don't think even the best teachers do the best job every day um I think for me you know I I had for example my physics teacher was tremendously influential in my life you know he was an older man he really knew his stuff and he really loved his subject. And that was not the impression I got from my biology teachers, you know. So, <laughs> yeah, so when I say like the responsibility, it's, it, it's not in a sort of critical sense. It just means that it's, then it leads to the training needs and all that, doesn't it? So, the story I would, this, where I feel I, the book written, if as I was a science teacher, I'd want to read this book because it's going to help me tell stories which I might not be telling and in a way which I might not be telling them. And you weave this brilliant thread. So, I mean, people could start the first. The first chapter in the book is is called is, is about rainbows. What why is the sky blue? Is what it's called. But it's and when I first started reading, it's not honest for you because I'm a science sort of. I'm, you know, I, I've got I've got my own sort of biases. I started reading it and thinking, where are the pictures? <laughs> like I want to see it, and I just thought, well, let me let you know. Look, where's the pictures? You know, because I'm looking for a diagram, and. Um, but then I just thought, well, there aren't pictures. It's not the way this book's been written. So I let the book do its work on me. And, oh, my God, I don't need pictures because you've made me imagine it. You've made me visualise it. And you're talking me through. And this brilliant description of, like, when the sun goes down and why we see it red. And then the violet comes in and when the sun's dropped over the horizon. I just think, I'm with you. <laughs> and you explain, it's just, it's just, it's just gorgeous. The language is the way that you communicate the ideas rather than needing to draw things so I, I was really fascinated by that was that like a deliberate thing to do it that way or is it just the way that you write naturally I'm feeling uh, very flattered and I'm, I'm really delighted um, Tom to hear someone like you get the book I, I was kind of scared that um, people like you wouldn't get it and I, I kind of 
I was kind of terrified that what uh, is what I'm trying to do actually going to work for anyone else? Because weirdly, uh, people always ask you, who's the audience for the book, right? And I hate that question because, yes, you can think of, oh, these types of people should buy this book. And oh, it's a constant question we were always asked in television, you know, who's the audience? And, and mo- most... And I'm going to say something that, uh, you know, I'm glad my publisher can't change their mind now. You know, I kind of wrote the book for myself. I kind of just wanted to get down how I saw science teaching and, and what is important. And the diagrams thing, um, you're, you're going to laugh at this. The, um, the reason why there are no diagrams is because the publisher said, please don't put in any diagrams because it doesn't work for audiobooks. It's a very prosaic reason, but it's great because it's that thing. Um, a lot of uh, creative activities, often um, constraints can force you to be more creative. So that was one of the constraints. And the, the other constraint, which massively helped me, was uh, I've been wanting to write a book like this for over 10 years. And uh, I never had the bottle. I never thought I could write a book that encompassed like the big ideas of science uh in a, in a way that would make sense and so i just never got round to writing it I, I i repeatedly like started a document on my my computer because um you know my agent kept saying you know that, that that's the book you should write that's the book you should write and I, I just never knew how to come at it and then i was approached to write a very different book to this one which was uh the the publisher said oh you know we want to write a book about school science that uh you know answers childlike questions and um so they wanted very kind of simplistic kind of it was it was meant to be a not this book uh answering childlike questions and when i started writing the book it, it it just came to me that actually in order to answer these questions people need to understand science and in order to understand science you need the whole story and and so one of the challenges was to come up with questions which would allow me to to weave my way towards the ideas that I actually wanted to talk about. So, you know, the book isn't about these seven questions. Um, the book is is about science and the big ideas. And and uh, I'm really delighted to to hear that you get that it it it's a narrative. It, it's so one of the things I talk about in the book is that science tells us the best creation story that humans have ever come up with. You know, all different cultures have come up with creation myths about how the universe started and so forth. And Science gives us that, you know, if you take the Big Bang Theory and the theory of evolution by natural selection, we have the best creation story that humans have ever come up with. But in order to really appreciate it, you you need to have an understanding of science. You need to know what atoms are. You need to know what chemicals are. You need to know what chemical reactions are. And, you know, the book, coming back to your question about constraints and, and diagrams, by being constrained by having to answer these childlike questions, it, it, helped me to write the book that I really wanted to write, which was, you know, when I just had a blank document in front of me, which was like, you know, write about all of science, I didn't make any progress. But once I had this constraint of, you know, answer these childlike questions, no diagrams, weirdly, it helped me to write the book. Anyone think as well, you had massive creative writing to be able to write without diagrams. There is that, it's like the beautiful amalgamation of your of your areas of expertise, isn't it? The creative writing and the science. It's like the perfect little marriage of those aspects, I should imagine. Um, I just wanted to ask, though, you know, the questions that you answer in your book, were there any that you also wish you'd put in there or 
or kind of ones that you that remain unanswered? Yeah, so um, there's not much uh, geology in the book. And so uh, there was a chapter called What Are Rocks that I really wanted to, to include. And then, <clears throat> um, you know, th- there's lots of stuff that I, I've missed out, you know. Um, but yeah, What Are Rocks? I, I really wish I'd, I'd written that chapter. But um, the, the kind of book it kind of took a life on a life of its own in that uh, once I'd written the first few chapters, I knew where I was going to go with it and, and where mm-hmm. it needed to end up. Um, but I had a, a really awful experience, which was I wrote the first five chapters and then I just ground to a halt. I couldn't, I couldn't function. I couldn't write. I couldn't write the last two chapters. And I just had this horrible, horrible, I, I guess they call it writer's block or whatever, but it lasted about two years. It was awful. And I knew, <laughs> I knew I had to write this book and you had to finish it. And literally for two years, I, I could never open my laptop and get on with it. And, uh, that, that was really, really scary. Um, I, I was just like, I didn't really understand what was going on. Um, but partly what I think it was, was like uh, my brain just subconsciously working on the concluding chapters and, and the concluding chapters. One of the things that I think the book models is a school science education. You know, you start with the basics and you you, you get more and more sophisticated. And, uh, you know, the book, you know, by the time you get to the last two chapters, you know, you, you do need to have read the previous chapters. And, and uh, you know, the, the I think they're they're more difficult to read chapters they were more difficult to write um and and i think the book kind of mirrors how if if you go to school and you you do physics up to a level or biology up to a level you know there is that tremendous satisfaction of like i feel like you know gcse science is a little bit and then if you do an a level you you do feel like you you've got a grasp of physics or biology or chemistry that a level really gives you that deeper level of of knowledge that that the kids who really love science want um and whereas i think um but it's so much more difficult right like the the a level the jump from gcse to a level is one that many students study uh, struggle with yeah. uh, and for me the last two chapters i would say are the kind of a level levels of of the book in that you know for me the the jump between the first five chapters and the and the the, the last two chapters writing it was it was quite a jump um not least because it, it's not my specialist subject i'm not a biologist and uh, I'd just like to take this opportunity to thank the many amazing biologists who, who helped make sure that I've got my facts right and so forth. Well, the last two chapters, you know, are fish animals and what am I made of? And, and it, it's it's about DNA. And but I, I think that the chapter on, on evolution is 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 brilliant, and it's it's one of my favorite. I'm a physics specialist, but for me, the story of evolution, as you say, is and interesting. It's like this comes up in a lot of my training. Because one of my things that I'm fascinated by in the national curriculum, I sort of think the people who wrote it are sort of quiet geniuses, key stage two. Because lurking in year three, you have to sort of talk about rocks. And and then in year six, you have to talk about evolution. And there's all this stuff in there about fossils. And you're sort of building the layers from like rocks, fossils, and then how old is the earth? And then we've got the time and space to allow ourselves to imagine how dinosaurs could have evolved and become extinct and living things are, you know, changed and it's just it's a beautiful thing and if you know i i always make this thing so if you don't know that rocks kind of tell the story of time and explain dinosaurs then you just treat treat them like some dry old boring old thing but if you know this is the beginning of the most profound story ever you think that's why we learn about rocks and you've that's why the books like this are so powerful because when you read that chapter or just the chapter about why is the sky blue 
you're just filled with all this it all connects together you think oh wow that's so that's so beautiful it's so kind of organized and it as someone who understands the science it's like it's singing to me because I kind of get it but I'm, I'm sort of thinking it's hard to know what it would be like to read it if I didn't know the science to be honest but it's I do really think it's it's for children, but it's also for parents, it's for teachers. It's, it's great. It's a real accomplishment. Well, that, uh, unfortunately, that's the problem with the publisher in that I think they do, they don't really know where to pitch it and, and how to market it. But, um, you know, um, I'm really glad that I, I think you've hit on something which I think often gets lost in school science, you know, which is the interconnectedness and, and how, uh, you know, I know we split it up into biology, physics and chemistry, but actually... For me, you know, even as a teenager, I, I kind of loved science as a whole. And, uh, you know, as I, as I write in the book, I'm really sad that, uh, you know, I felt like my biology education didn't really uh, do enough to convince me of why biology was as interesting and profound as physics and chemistry. And now, you know, I find biology much more interesting. And, um, you know, I, I think I, it depends on how science is taught. So, you know, in science, in many schools, if you're lucky, I guess, from one perspective, you get separate science teachers and you do separate sciences or whatever. But to me, it's the interconnectedness of science that makes it, as as, as we both describe it, that, you know, it's, it is this tremendous cultural achievement. It is this phenomenal story. And unfortunately, it's not like, a, you know, an ordinary story where you can just read it. it you, you kind of need to work to really appreciate uh, what a wonderful story it is. But I, I want more people to have the opportunity to do that. And, you know, yes, we, we, we're doing our best as science teachers. But, you know, as Emma said, lots of children just well, for whatever reason don't engage with it at school. And, you know, everyone should have a second chance to do it. Like, you know, I'm sure lots of people come to classical music late or, you know, ballet and so forth. And I think... For me, one of the, the the kind of recurring themes in my work is that science isn't just for people who want to grow up to be scientists, and science is a, a part of our cultural heritage. And if you can just be shown how to access it, if you can just be given that gift, then it, it, it's like listening to music, you know. Um, and uh, I always say, you know, imagine a, a life without music or art. And and science to me is. Uh, I say it in the book, it, it comes from the same place that art and music and literature comes from, because, you know, as as humans, uh, all of us, uh, you know, at some point, once we've got food and shelter, we, we, we're we asking ourselves these big questions. We're trying to make sense of the world. And, you know, I think art and music and literature are expressions of how we make sense of the world and, and then sharing our understanding of the world with other people. And, and, that's exactly what science does, right? In a very literal sense, you know, science is about understanding the world and then communicating our understanding of it with other people. And, you know, tell me that's you, not what music is. One of the parents are involved. Have you, uh, Emma, have you ever made any of Mr. Shah's recipes for wonder? <laughs> no, is but that... as, you were talking, as you were talking about art, music and science, there, I was remembering my A-level biology teacher I am a biologist, I'm not a physicist. Um, but I remember her talking about, she said, imagine if every single chemical reaction that went on in a leaf made a, played a musical note as it did it and lay underneath the tree. Imagine the sound that you would hear. It would be absolutely deafening and it would be so beautiful to listen to. And I, I, every time I now lie under a tree, that's exactly what I think is my A-level biology teacher saying, if science 
if you could hear the music of science, you would never want to stop listening to it. And I was just absolutely fascinated mm. listening to you talk about kind of the, it's almost like a seductive narrative of science rather than an actual kind of body of facts and knowledge. It's actually that beautiful seductive narrative of, of what's happening in the world that's missing so I was just on a little flight of fancy with you and my A-level biology teacher <laughs> thinking about you there's, there's a few things that I mean I, I I totally agree with that and that's like this is why you know there's so much to that you've packed into there and, and I love there's a kind of little nod to your previous work so at the back of the book you've got a couple of appendices where you actually do a bit of Mr. Shahaz recipes. I mean, you're, you've you've done some brilliant work of helping parents bring science home with like kitchen table experiments. And there's a classic jelly bean wave machine. Big fan of that. So that's the back. And it's this sort of thing like, you know, how do I how do I get kids thinking about science if I'm a parent? I mean, I'm gonna you've given them some tools, and that that book was wonderful. I mean, so many practical ideas in there, but also there's some more sort of other things that you weave into the book, like you're really good at kind of modeling the fact that science isn't just a sort of Western um, kind of origin phenomenon because you're always telling those stories. And also you talk about the fact that in the, in the chapter about gravity, that Newton, for example, I like the bit where you say he wasn't a very nice person. <laughs> also, he didn't do it all. He didn't invent it all himself. So you, you project science as being a collaborative process with some kind of people get a bit more credit than they deserve. And then finally, I think about the models. That to me was just, yeah, that's clever. I mean, to weave in the idea that science is, we're forming models and then the models have to be representations. And that, that to me is quite a, an abstract idea and using the story of light as a model for what is actually happening. I, it's so, it's, it's, there's lots of levels in there. So I'm, I'm trying to sort of <laughs> trail all this of people listening and for the, it's just patch of stuff. It's like it's great. I mean, I'm I'm so impressed that you managed to sort of weave all those things into to a book. I'm I'm really glad you appreciate it. As I said, um, you know, my, I'm not sure. I I don't know how other people respond to the book, and uh, I think it is very much a science teacher's book. You know, I'm I'm I, I'm proud of being a science teacher. I'm really grateful that I somebody gave me the opportunity to write this book because. Um, I, I, I actually don't think anybody would have given me the opportunity to write this book if I'd written the proposal. It kind of almost came about by accident. And um, I'm, I'm really glad it exists. I don't know if it, you know, I don't know if anyone will read it, but it's it's lovely to to hear a fellow science teacher who, who gets it. And in a way, you know, if the only other people who read it are science teachers, you know, I'll be, I'll be perfectly happy with that because, I, I, you know, I think science teaching, is, I think teaching is important. And I think science teaching is important and I'm just I feel very privileged to to have been given the opportunity to just you know I've got 25 years of thinking about this stuff and to, to just write it down in a book is is wonderful and obviously I'd love people to read it but um I'm sure you know what what the world of publishing is like and what it's like to to convince people to to read these days you know I'd love I'd love teenagers to read it but you know even my best and brightest uh six formers don't read books yeah, it's 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 a struggle. We've got to make them first, then make them available. And I guess it goes into paperback and then audio and all the rest of it. Yeah. So the audio is quite weird. I, I um, um like um like I mean Emma, we talked to a lot of people who have written books about cognitive science and all that research informed kind of angle. Mm -hmm. So it's actually it's really I think refreshing and important to have a kind of a more of a narrative style, but also to focus on the content, uh, the the ideas. 
that the other people are talking about teaching. So these things sort of mesh together, like the how you well, teach. I, I think, I, I think as well that for a non-scientist but a teacher of science, it's really important, and that is a lot of professionals and my colleagues who work in primary is we are teachers of science but we are not necessarily trained scientists not everybody is so this would be a perfect book for people who are involved in the teaching of science but haven't necessarily got a science background because it's so accessible and it explains the concept so beautifully and and in such a way that it's, it's interesting and not terrifying because if you pick up some science textbooks if the last time you did science yourself was when you were 16 it it can feel quite a long time ago (laughs) and you may have forgotten parts of it but I think this is a beautiful kind of revisit of the the kind of the the gifts that science has to give us in terms of the stories within it for those people who maybe are teachers of science but not scientists I think that's your market there that's amazing (laughs) I need to write down what you said something about um that was great line it's one of those that needs to go on the back of the book um I'll have to re-listen to this. Well, Feel free. Bless it when it... Well, look, this is the time. We're, we're, I've, I've forgotten this bit. We have to, we have to finish. <laughs> sort of, honestly, it's, I've got so many more questions. I, I haven't even talked about all the pages I've folded down. But anyway, it's, it's, anyway, it's not just about the book. I, I just think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start wrapping things up now because I feel like, you know, it's, it's just a real pleasure talking to someone who's, who's spent a career in teaching as well as doing other things, but also modelling, like Emma said, balanced career, uh, being creative, still doing the job uh, in, a, in a comprehensive school in London. That's the full-on deal. And finding the space to share and reach out to other people and share the ideas in such a magnificent way. So for me, the, what you're doing and the contribution you're making to our space is amazing. And you've been doing it for 10 years and more. So thank you so much for that. And thank you for joining us on the podcast. Uh, thank you. Um, uh, it's it's an absolute pleasure to to talk to my fellow teachers. And um, honestly, um, it, it's incredibly gratifying to to hear that you you think the book is good because um, uh, yeah, you were the audience. You know, my fellow teachers, the audience that I was most terrified of. So thank you. <laughs> Hopefully, they won't. Once they realise there's nothing, you won't nothing to fear. But so, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you everyone thank listening. You. Um, thank you to coming back to Mind the Gap. We're, we really had a great year last year and we've got some great guests coming up this year. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you very soon. Thanks for listening to Mind the Gap. We hope you enjoyed hearing what's on our minds today. For much more great content, make sure to check out the video version of our show, which includes additional segments and features. Visit edcircuit.com or go to YouTube and subscribe to our channel, Mind the Gap with Tom and Emma. See you next time.